0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Cesar Hidalgo is a professor, and not too long ago, a perfectly ordinary thing happened to him. A student wandered into his office. So, like, I had this student a few years ago, a very bright
1: student, like an undergrad from MIT. And, you know, I was working in my office, and and she knocked
0: the door. She came in, you know. And I should say here that Hidalgo studies, among other things, learning and collective memory— So this girl comes in, and she hears a song that's playing in the background.
1: And Imagine from John Lennon was playing, and for me, Imagine from John Lennon is one of the most recognizable songs ever. hey what song is this she kind of like looks at me and she's all like dumbfounded and she gets kind of nervous and she said is this Coldplay and to me that was like in some sense I'm I'm a rock and roll fan and everything so it was it was kind of like almost insulting to say Coldplay when it was imagined by John Lennon
0: but the students inability to distinguish Chris Martin who's the lead singer of Coldplay from John Lennon tells us a lot about memory and how it works Hidalgo first stumbled into the memory business when he was looking at something pretty dry national export data. But then I realized that actually,
1: well, there's more to our knowledge than the knowledge that we use to make things. So I started collecting data on biographies to try to understand also this aspect of cultural production. Like you can think of Brazil as a country that exports iron ore, but also a country that exports a lot of soccer players. And, mm-hmm. and that second part was not captured, you know, in the data sets that we were looking into. So I started working on this space of cultural memory and collective memory, because I wanted to understand an aspect of knowledge that I was not able to capture using the economic data that I've been using
0: so far. And indeed, in an era when knowledge is king, exporting soccer players or movie stars or singers, that can be huge business. Which doesn't, by the way, mean that these people have to actually leave the country. Just their images or the jerseys that have their number or movies that have them in it.
1: In Chile, I remember, like, in the 90s, you know, and in the 80s, all of our television, like, probably, like, 90% of all programming was from the U.S. I grew up watching ALF, MacGyver, you know, (laughs) The Golden Girls,
0: you know, uh, Three's Company. So Hidalgo's work on country's cultural capital, it led him to another question. How long do famous people stay that way? How long are they wedged into our collective consciousness? How long do we remember a song like Imagine? or a person like John Lennon. Well, it's complicated, and it depends on the field that you're in. But let's stick with music for now. Especially when music was a big business in the 50s and 60s and 70s, if your song made it to
1: the top of the Billboard or, or they make it to the top 100, it was a song that a lot of people knew about at that moment. You know, it was a big accomplishment. And we look at how famous those songs are today based on how many plays they get on online services like Last.fm or Spotify.
0: What they found is that after the first few years, 2,000 days to be precise, well, after that, the song's fame, it drops like a stone. So let's say on day one, it hits the top of the charts. Well, pretty much every week and month after that, fewer people listen. After those first five years, interest in the song continues to fall, but it levels off. It becomes a gentler fall. Something changes. So what that you is that like these popular songs, there's like a period of like around
1: up to five years in which that is still in what we would call our communicative memory. You know, we sort of like are still talking about it and are part of like our conversation. After that, they go into the cultural memory, which is the memory that is encoded in materials, in, in whether it is recordings, books, you know, magazines, you know, different forms of recorded media. And in the case of songs, those 2000 days, those five years is more or less the timescale of the transition
0: between these two regimes. Some people, Hidalgo says, are able to maintain their fame, and he's gathered huge amounts of data on who exactly the most famous people in the world are we take all of the people that have a presence in many language
1: editions of the Wikipedia, okay? So we try to focus on people that are globally famous so you can read about them in English and in Chinese and in Swahili and whatever. And we then look at how many page views they have, how are those page views distributed across different languages, because we don't want people that they're just very famous in English only, but they have fame... And if you look at that, you would find that the most famous people, it's not that surprising. Like Jesus is very famous, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, like all Greek philosophers like Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, they're also very famous. Leonardo da Vinci is very famous. But it becomes more interesting when you start looking at, at more finer cuts, you know. Who is the most famous people born, let's say, in the year that you were born? Or who is the most famous people born on the 20th century in Latin America? In that case, it's Che Guevara.
0: Hidalgo says getting data from Wikipedia is the very best way that he's found to measure the popularity of different figures. So Wikipedia has like a few advantages. One
1: is that, you know, it's very open. So it's accessible in terms of collecting the data and structuring the data and organizing the data. It's also quite global because there are Wikipedians in many different languages. So it exists in more than 200 different language editions.
0: Most of us, though, are known Leonardo da Vinci or Che Guevara. Which we discovered when we also got interested in this question of memory and sent our interns out to play clips of famous movies and music. We purposely chose things that weren't all that recent and that might have faded from memory. The question was, had they? You can test yourself as we play the clips. First up, do you know where this is from? And now, ladies and gentlemen, here. Interns asked people at the Boston Public Library if they knew what that was a clip of. All the people that she talked to were between the ages of 30 and 70. Yeah, that's a Johnny Carson show? Yeah, of course. It's uh, um, uh, Johnny Carson, uh, the uh, primarily 80s uh, late night show, uh, right? That's Ed McMahon introducing Johnny Carson on the late night show. And here's what we got when we asked college students in their early 20s. I don't like. I recognize that type of thing, and isn't that "Here's Johnny" the thing that was in The Shining? Isn't I don't know. I just think of "Here's Johnny" from The Shining. I recognize it. Um, like if you, it's a very famous quote, and people reference it a lot. But if you ask me, like where I could, where it's from, like I couldn't tell you. I have no idea. No. Nope. Maybe Johnny Cash is like what I would think of if I hear Johnny. So yeah, a pretty noticeable gap. Okay, here's the next clip for you to try to identify. <laughs> you go. Where shall I go? What shall I do? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Now, if you don't know what that was, don't worry. Neither did Caesar Hidalgo. Do you know what that is? Yeah, that's the
1: end of Casablanca. No.
0: It's the end of Gone with the Wind. Oh, <laughs> I don't give a damn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. R- exactly. yeah. Exactly.
1: That's Stark Gable.
0: Yeah. Exactly. You got it. Yeah. All right. Let's hear what the young people thought. I feel like I've seen this reference in like gifs on the internet. <laughs> I, I don't know where it's from, though. It's, uh, but you recognize it? Like... Yeah, yeah, no, I recognize the tone of voice and like the words. I recognize it, but couldn't name it. Okay, I know that line, mm. but I can't remember what it's from. It's
1: uh it's from a movie, an old movie, and it's also based on a book.
0: Is it from um? um... Is from Casanova?
1: No, from <laughs> I have Casanova. no idea.
0: The older folks that we talked to were mostly on more solid footing.
1: Uh, Vivian Lee is Gone with the Wind. Uh, I think that's Casablanca. Is it Casablanca? No,
0: it's the other one. Uh, the other Humphrey Bogart. Um, it's Gone with the Wind. I remember it because... I mean, I'm not not—I'm probably not the, the best person to ask these questions to because like, I'm like really into film, so... I probably have seen a lot of things that not everybody has seen. But it's a classic movie. I mean, like, you know, 1930s. Like, everybody, everybody knows Gone with the Wind. And finally, if you're looking for something that underscores the cultural dividing power of music, check out this song. a few people around our office if they knew it, and I would say that everybody over about 35 or 40 did, including Adalgo, who told us, interestingly, that people around 40 in Chile, which is where he's originally from, would also know that song. By contrast, nobody younger than 35 or 40, at least in our office, had any idea what the song was, which is exactly what we found when we played Janis Joplin for Strangers. Here are the college kids. I don't know. (laughs) I feel like I've heard it before, but I really can't place it. (laughs) Is that Aretha Franklin? And here are the older folks. Yeah, of course, Janis Joplin. Yeah. So that is a Janis Joplin song. It reminds me very much of college. Janis Joplin. uh,
1: She originally sang for Big Brother and the Holding Company, but I think, I don't know if that's then or after she left. to have her solo career.
0: So how then does memory work? Why are people like Johnny Carson and Janis Joplin being, apparently to some extent, forgotten? Cesar Hidalgo, who studies memory at MIT, says, one theory is that the continual production of new content is always pushing the old content further and further back on the shelf. But it's not just a straight line. Someone or something can stay famous for a pretty long time. And then the human life cycle starts to exert pressure call it the Elvis phenomenon. You were always on my mind. You were always on my mind.
1: So Elvis memorabilia was like a big deal and there was a big market for it throughout the 80s and 90s and so forth and these objects that were owned by Elvis or that, you know, related to him captured like big prices but all of a sudden these prices started to plummet. What was happening is that basically all of the collectors were dying. You know, they were very old people. And there were families that now were inheriting, like, rooms full of Elvis memorabilia. And they would go and try to sell them. Of course, the other people that would be on the market to buy those were also people that were very old. Or there were also other people that were dying. So, therefore, you know, the market was flooded all of a sudden with all of these collectibles. And the market that used to buy them and that inflated those prices also disappeared. No, so that tells you that in that case there was sort of like a generational component that inflated that price. You know, there was something that was very valuable and cherished to them, and as the generation passed away, the market got flooded of things that they were of less value to the newer generations, and people had no way to get rid of many of these objects.
0: I remember once uh, interviewing somebody, and they told me uh, the story of the Mona Lisa, and the Mona Lisa, you know, was was done in the 1500s by Leonardo da Vinci, but my impression was it's not was not that famous. It got really famous in the 1900s and it was stolen from the Louvre in Paris. And the, the stealing of the painting made it a much more famous painting. And so I wonder if you ever see situations where for some reason something's like kind of not that famous. And all of a sudden it gets famous or, or 300 years later it gets famous again.
1: So, like, there are fortunate events, and since fame has this cumulative advantage type of process, once it gets ongoing, it happens. So, the Mona Lisa example is great—you know, it gets stolen, gets a lot of press, and then it gets recovered, and that gets a lot of press again. So, then of course, it's in a Scooby Doo and everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Einstein had a similar story. So, when Einstein came to the United States, and he gets off the boat. The newspapers had sent people to, like, meet Einstein, but there was this, like, high-level political figure also coming in that same ship, but there were a lot of people there to receive that, you know, political figure. And, and since the person was in the same ship, you know, and they were all speaking German and stuff like that, like, the journalists got there and say, wow, this Einstein is really famous. Look, there's, like, 2,000 people waiting for him. And they were not waiting for him, but they get confused. So Einstein becomes front-page news because basically a big group of people in the city of New York came here to receive these famous
0: physicists, when in reality that was not the case. But that gets the ball rolling. Well, And it seems like it may happen with culture, too. You know, I, I think about people like Ada Lovelace or Grace Hopper, really famous women, either mathematicians or computer scientists who maybe were famous at one point, but... Uh, maybe for reasons of culture now, which is like we're trying to encourage women to go, women and girls to go into science, they may have achieved a level of fame now that they never achieved during their lifetimes because the cultural agenda during their lifetimes was really different from the cultural agenda now. The cultural agenda then might have been like, ah, women don't belong in math and science. And now it, things have very much changed. So I, I do think that's correct.
1: I think a lot of like the cultural world right now is based on this famous currency. You know, like in some way, a lot of the fights that are taking place is where there was someone in history that did something that now we consider wrong according to our present day moral standards, and therefore their legacy should be diminished or reduced or even you know obliterated. And if there's people in the past that did something that was important and it was not recognized, whether we should give them a legacy now they don't have. So it's kind of like interesting that. It's not about a market of money. It's not about, like, Bill Cosby losing its money. It's more like the legacy, what they try to take away when they find things that are not morally acceptable. And I think a lot of what is going on right now is sort of different attempts to try to rewrite history based on history that matches our present-day moral standards.
0: What do you think of that? I mean, that that's clearly this issue of memory and who we remember and who deserves to be remembered. I think about the controversy over uh, statues related to the uh, Confederacy. You know, sh- should there be statues of people like Robert E. Lee? When you see that co- kind of controversy, and you, having studied memory the way you have, and what gets remembered and what gets forgotten, what do you think?
1: So, to be honest, I, I think it's a little bit troubling to me because. It's not about memory and culture. This is also a question about morals, okay? And morals are culturally learned and change over time. So the morals that we have today are different than the morals that we had 500 years ago, for sure. The morals that we have in one part of the world can be different than the ones that we have in another part of the world. Even in the same city, people from different groups or social classes or religion can have different morals because we learn them, we share them. It's kind of like some sort of agreement that we get to. So I get very nervous when we think that we can impose our present-day moral As a constant through time, because that violates sort of like that reality of morality being culturally learned. I say, I should not judge the moral actions of people from 200 years ago, because in some sense, you know, I don't know what it is to be there. They don't know what it is to be here. So I shouldn't blame them for what they did here. And my opposite side of that coin is that I don't want the moral actions that I'm doing today to be judged by the people from 200 years from now. Because that people is going to have a completely different set of ethics, you know. Maybe they're going to think very different about, like, the moral status and agency of AI compared to the way that we think. And they're going to consider that if we treat Alexa in a way that is lewd, that's completely unacceptable and we're completely unwoke. Well, you know, that's different times and each moral has its time, its place. So I don't think it makes that much sense to try to impose the moral from one point in time to all of the other points
0: in time and space. Do you worry? Has the work that you've done in thinking about what we forget and how quickly we forget it does it does it raise any concerns for you? Are we forgetting things that are important too quickly? It, has the pace speeded up of what we forget? I mean, I just wonder as you've seen as you've done this work, what struck you?
1: One thing that to me was kind of like quite striking was another work that we did and we published recently. In which we look at how different communication technologies affected the people that we remember. We see there are very, very strong patterns in which, like, the size of our collective memory basically, how many people we remember from like 500 years ago or 700 years ago and so forth and what occupations those people perform changes in an almost like switch like manner as communication technologies enter. So, before printing, Most of our biographical records are about religious leaders and about political leaders. Very few writers, almost no scientists, no artists. Printing comes along and you have a huge rise in the number of astronomers and mathematicians and painters and so forth. Then there is kind of like a second era of writing in which we developed not only printing of books, but printing of journals and periodicals. You know, it, t- it took like 200 years for people to go through printing books to figure out that you can print in something, you know, with more frequency and a shorter format. And that also causes like a rise of like a, the public sphere and so forth. Then you have the introduction of film and radio. And it's the first time in history that performers become famous. If you think about it, the Greeks had actors, but nobody can name a Greek actor. Mm-hmm. You can name a Greek playwright, but not an actor. You know, Shakespeare, of course, had actors acting in his plays, but people know the playwright; they don't know the actors. The same is true in music. People never knew the performer. They knew the composer in the era of printing. But the performer is the one that becomes famous in the era of of film, radio. And then in television, you got the famous sports players. Like, sports did exist in some form. Of course, they grew a lot during the 20th century. But they really exploded with television. Television and sports are really two very, very, very closely intermarried, you know, things. And now with the internet, we also saw kind of like a few changes. But since our data is based on biographies, still is very recent to be able to be conclusive there. That to me was very striking that when we think about history, instead of thinking of like the modern times or the Renaissance or, you know, like medieval times, maybe we want to think of history also in terms of the different communication eras that we have. Because at least when we look at the biographical records, even if we know nothing about history, those patterns jump at you.
0: César Hidalgo is the director of MIT's Collective Learning Group Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And on our way out here, since we gave you a few quiz questions before to see if you remembered famous people from the past, here's one more. And as we did with the others, we quiz both older folks and younger folks. So, can you identify this clip and who's in it? Now, honey, remember when we were married, you wanted to be joined together in matrimony. <laughs> yeah. And as I recall...
1: It was till death do us part.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> that event is about to take place right now. Here were the answers we got from people we met who were 30 through 70. Yeah, so I know that's I Love Lucy and you know, Desi Arnaz uh, talking at the last part of it. Is that Lucille Ball? It's like an, an older kind of comedy sitcom. I actually remember my parents watching her a little bit, but I didn't, I didn't watch the show. Yeah, it's I Love Lucy. Um, I remember it because when I was really little, like four or five years old, there was this TV channel. Uh, it was called Nick at Night, and they used to run it all the time, and I used to watch it. And these were the college kids. I have absolutely no idea. No idea. No idea. Not at all. I don't recognize it. Really? Nothing? No. Yeah, couldn't tell you. <laughs> nothing? No, it's, sorry. No, not at all. It's a. Uh... How you're acting out I love Lucy. Oh yeah. We've got a lot more about Cesar Hidalgo's work on how memory and fame are interwoven. That's at innovationhub.org.